Welcome to That You May Grow Thereby, a work of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. We are located at 18 Scott Drive in Florence, Kentucky. Our phone number is 859-371-2095. You can also visit us at www.nkcofc.com. And now, that you may grow thereby. Thank you for listening to That You May Grow Thereby. My name is Greg Littmer. I am one of the elders of the Northern Kentucky Church of Christ. And today I'd like to talk to you about an individual who rather frequently comes up in religious discussion. And we find him in four different places in the Gospels. We find him in Matthew chapter 27, verses 38 through 44. We find him in Mark chapter 15, verses 27 through 32. We find him in John chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. And then we also find him in the most well-known and frequently referenced place, that being Luke chapter 23, first verse 33, and then 39 through 43. What we're going to be talking about in this episode is what about the thief on the cross? So I'm going over to Luke chapter 23, where I'll read verse 33 first, and then skip down and look at verses 39 to 43. Verse 33 tells us, And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Now I'll be reading verses 39 to 43. And one of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, Today you shall be with me in paradise. If we were to read Matthew and Mark's accounts, we would find that early on, Both of the thieves reviled our Lord and cast insults at him. Approximately 740 years before this event took place on Calvary, the prophet Isaiah looked down the great expanse of time and saw the Messiah as a suffering servant, led as a lamb to the slaughter. In verse 12 of Isaiah 53, he wrote, And he was numbered with the transgressors. The context of this prophecy indicates that this was at his death. However, let me suggest something to think about. Jesus was not only numbered with the transgressors at his death, he was also numbered with the transgressors during his life. Remember the Lord's words in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 19, when he said, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax gatherers and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Jesus came to save sinners. He said in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The Lord taught sinners, ate with sinners, healed sinners, forgave sinners, and died in the midst of sinners. Jesus himself was not a sinner, but he did not turn his back on them or his nose up at them. He came to help them, and the them is you and me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, we are told, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If Jesus had not been numbered with the transgressors, we could never have been saved. But let us go back to the thief on the cross, focusing on Luke's account. Let's see if we might notice the steps that led to the statement, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. First, the thief was most assuredly a sinner. A criminal act is what had put him on the cross in the first place. Both Matthew and Mark inform us that he had joined with his fellow criminal and the crowd in insulting and verbally abusing our Lord. Not only had this man sinned against his fellow man, and of course all sins are first and foremost against God, on the cross he was also guilty of blasphemy against the Son of Man. Before a man can be saved he must be a sinner, and there is no doubt about it with this man he was the genuine article. He was a sinner, lost and without hope. Secondly, this man witnessed the love and mercy of Jesus. Going back to Luke 23, we'll look at verse 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. Now let's just think about this for a minute. Here was Jesus, beaten, spat upon, mocked with the scarlet robe and the crown of thorns. Here he was stripped in shame and in final humiliation and pain, nailed to a cross amidst additional insult and mockery. Yet Jesus, still with love in his great heart, looked down upon the very ones he came to save and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Contemporary literature from the time tells us that most men, when crucified, yelled back at the crowds, returning insult for insult, but not Jesus. From his lips flowed concern, compassion, even kindness. Did the thief hear our Lord? I don't know, but I know he saw how Jesus was reacting to the abuse. Thirdly, this man was willing to repent. Just a short while before, he had been a hardened criminal, hurtling abuse at the Lord. But now he has been able to be with Jesus, however briefly and from a cross. But he heard him speak and saw him suffer and his heart was touched to the point of rebuking his fellow criminal who continued to lash out at the occupant of the middle cross, Jesus the Christ. In the fourth place, he was willing to recognize and confess the sinlessness of Jesus. He began to notice the innocence and the moral excellence of the Lord. There was something very special about this one who had done nothing wrong. The thief, who moments before was a blasphemer, now became a servant of Jesus. There wasn't much that the thief could do in service to the Lord at this point, but what he did, he did what he could. Apparently, he silenced the other thief. Up to this point in the crucifixion scene, was there a single one willing to stand up and defend Jesus? Where were Peter, James, and John? Where were the other apostles? Where were his disciples and the multitudes who had followed his every step, heard him teach, and beheld his miracles? Not one appeared to defend the Lord until this thief spoke out. Finally, he made his appeal to Jesus. He didn't ask in mockery like the other thief did, and he wasn't seeking some special favor like the mother of Zebedee's children in Matthew 20 and 20 and 21 did. He simply said, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. It is so interesting to me that there were so many who actually saw Jesus raise the dead and they did not believe. This man saw Jesus die, and he believed. 
No wonder the Lord replied as he did, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Salvation was promised to this thief. Paradise is that part of Hades which is the resting place of departed faithful souls. He would be with the Lord there in the Hadean paradise that very day. What a beautiful account. It touches our hearts and makes us marvel at the love and compassion of Jesus. What a shame that such a beautiful occurrence has been latched onto by those who desire to circumvent a clear command of the Lord to be baptized for the remission of sins. Oh, how frequently have I heard the question, what about the thief on the cross? The thinking process behind it is usually going something like this. The thief was not baptized. The Lord saved the thief. Therefore, I can be saved without being baptized just like the thief. In addressing that false assumption, it is absolutely vital that two things be realized and appreciated. First, the thief and Jesus lived under the old law of Moses. Secondly, Jesus had power on earth to forgive sins. Let's talk about the first one. In any consideration of the thief on the cross, a person must keep in mind that the thief lived under the old law. The writer of Hebrews argues very forcefully that a change in the law was made. Look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12. We are told, For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. If we move over just a few chapters to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 and through 17, we find when this change of the law took place. The passage tells us, And for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, in order that since the death thus taken place for redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. <clears throat> Excuse me. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead. For it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. Over in Romans chapter 7 and verse 4, Paul wrote, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. Put it all together, and it is easy to see that prior to the death of Jesus, the Old Testament was in effect. After his death, and predicated upon that death, the New Testament became effective, and even that did not occur until the New Testament or will was effectively read by the apostles on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, complete with the terms of admission into the kingdom. It is clear and it is obvious that we live in the New Testament era. It is equally clear and obvious that when Jesus said, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise, the thief was yet under the old law, because the statement was made by the Lord prior to his death. Whatever might be true about how the thief came to enjoy salvation is really of no relevance to our salvation today in the particulars because he lived under a different law. Let me illustrate this point. In the secular realm, there are laws applicable to us today that were not applicable to our ancestors. I have to have a driver's license, social security number, and so on. My great-grandfather didn't have to have any of those things. Prior to 1913, no one had to pay federal income tax. Can I say today, my great-grandfather didn't have to pay income tax, so I don't have to pay it either? I might try that, but before too very long, the IRS is going to come knocking on my door and explain to me with penalties that I am under a different law, 
and what my great-grandfather did as far as taxes are concerned is of no relevance to me. Well, the old law did not command baptism into the death of Christ. Jesus had not died for the remission of sins, but the New Testament most assuredly does. As far as the second point is concerned, when Jesus was on earth, he had the authority to forgive sins as he saw fit, in any way he saw fit, with any stipulations or conditions he saw fit to apply. In Matthew 9, in the case of the paralytic, we'll look at verses 1 through 6. There we find, in getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But in order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Rise, take up your bed, and go home. This paralyzed man was not commanded to be baptized. For that matter, he was not commanded to believe or repent either. Jesus had the power on earth to forgive sins as he saw fit. After our Lord's death, the new law came into effect. His blessings, including the forgiveness of sins, are now imparted according to his will. The conditions of that forgiveness are set. Under the New Testament, the same things are required of every individual. God has only one plan of salvation now, and that plan is revealed in the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. One of the conditions of that plan of salvation is that a penitent believer be baptized for the remission of his or her sins. I don't need to ask, what about Moses? What about Elijah? What about David? What about the thief on the cross? Or what about anybody else who lived under the old law? I need to ask, what must I do to be saved? We'll close with Peter's statement in Acts chapter 2, and verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I hope that this lesson has proved valuable to you, and you'll give it careful consideration. Thanks for listening.